Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Today on Climate One, we're discussing the importance of forests in the race to reduce carbon pollution that is driving weird weather in California and around the world. I'm Greg Dalton. Welcome, everyone. A tree that is cut down and made into plywood or paper is included in the economy. But what is the economic value of a tree left standing? Until recently, it's been close to zero. Corporations not in the paper or lumber businesses are increasingly talking about forests and how they relate to their business. In fact, a whole industry is springing up around the business of protecting forests as a way to protect the climate. Over the next hour, we will look at forest protection with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three people who operate deep in the forest. Mike Korczynski is founder and CEO of Wildlife Works, an environmental group. T.J. DiCaprio is senior director of environmental sustainability at Microsoft. And Cecil Wage is director of biodiversity and ecosystem services at Business for a Social Responsibility, a consulting firm here in San Francisco. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome, everyone. Mike Kurczynski, let's begin with you. Tell us about the overall state of the health of the world's forests and why they matter for the climate. Um, unfortunately, forests are being destroyed at a very alarming rate still today. Probably around 30 million acres a year of tropical forests are being destroyed for one reason or another, almost always economic. Um, and that destruction creates about 7 billion tons a year of emissions, so more than the entire global transportation sector. So it's a very significant contribution to the climate challenge that we face is all these emissions coming from forests being cut down and destroyed. And that matters to the, to the climate, so the idea is that to slow the rate of destruction or to actually reseed some of these forests? The, initially, the, the slow the rate of destruction. The first challenge is they're being destroyed for economic value, as you mentioned in your introduction. So the first challenge is to provide a competing economic value to leave them standing. And the mechanisms that we're going to discuss tonight are mm -hmm. the first attempts to create value in the standing natural capital of trees that will compete with the economic value in destroying the forests. 
Fisalwagi, you work with companies that are that are some of them involved with forests, some of them not. Uh, how are companies looking at the value of a tree standing versus a tree cut down that can be go into quarterly earnings? I mean, it's a wide range of points of view, obviously, as diverse as, mm-hmm. as companies in the world. But we've historically, you know, we have the situation that Mike describes as a function that standing trees are perceived as having value once you cut them down and turning them into other values. And the reality is they actually have a lot of value standing. We just haven't built it into how we account for nature and the economy. And this is linked to the bigger set of ideas and conversations around natural capital um, that is increasingly being discussed and by, discussed by more and more governments that are trying to and exploring through the World Bank wealth accounting for value, um, valuation of ecosystem services, different ways to try to build natural capital accounting methods into GDP. Um, it's also being explored by companies that are looking at building environmental uh, factors into corporate accounting like Puma is, like Dow Chemical Company. So we know that the value of a standing forest is not zero, mm-hmm. though that's the way we account for it in many ways. It's contested what exactly it is, depending on where the forest is, but we know something above zero. And we know that forests are incredibly important, not just for mitigating climate change, for sequestering carbon, but also for adapting to and for enabling um, not just having biodiversity, but the flows of water and retaining water and many other things. And so RED is an effort to say there's many ways we can actually look at um, monetizing what that is worth and starting to uh, go about accounting for the range of different, both monetarily but also from an environmental stance, the values that we derive. Um, so companies are starting to engage. There's leaders, like you'll hear from Microsoft, like Puma, like Dow, like Walt Disney Company. Um, and there's more and more that are quietly listening, learning, and starting to engage. And I think it's uh, – I have a colleague that recently wrote a blog that said, you know, you're increasingly starting to see a low-carbon parade. And as a corporate player and corporate leader, you have a choice. You can um, – join the parade, or you can become a leader and call it your own parade at this point in time. Well, we'll get back to some of those issues about Puma and, and the companies you mentioned and accounting and natural capital, et cetera. But, T.J. Capri, I want to ask you how Microsoft came to this be care about forests, your software company with coders and and uh, used to make CDs no longer. Uh, so uh, I guess even probably you don't send out lots of boxes anymore with uh, with Microsoft Office. So so tell us how you came to care about car- uh, forests and also to, uh, and then we'll get into the internal, oh, internal price on carbon. Well, you bring up a, an interesting point because we may not be packaging software on CDs or DVDs and, and sending out packages, but with our new business model and our shift to the cloud and services and devices, we realize that there is a significant consumption of energy and quite a bit of that energy that we consume through electricity and different energy sources has coal as a base and we're producing carbon. And, you know, for years, Microsoft does see that climate change poses some pretty significant challenges. And so we wanted to take a look at how we operate and get our own house in order. And part of that was to say, gosh, we're we're building data centers all over the world. The increase Mm -hmm. of our own energy consumption is going really high, as well as the proliferation of devices. So even, you know, with our customers, all the devices that we seem to be buying, even especially in this holiday season, we hear more and more of that. We wanted to, to make a statement and to begin our own journey 
by getting our own house in order. And so we did make a pledge in July of 2012 to be carbon neutral and really under the auspices of the, the Kyoto Protocol and do our part. And then as part of that, we wanted to be lean, to be more efficient, and then to be green by sourcing our, our energy consumption with renewables. And then, too, for our energy that, our, um, that we can't offset, uh, the carbon we can't offset is to purchase carbon credits and carbon offsets. And that's where, really, we started to take a look at forests and how we could preserve forests because it's such a way to approach carbon reduction at scale. And that's, that's kind of, you know, we've got data center energy consumption at huge quantities and preserving forests at scale as well. And, and so to help with that, we put a price on carbon and we charge for accountability purposes the different business groups through our organization, and then we collect the funds and we use those funds to support the efficiency and the greening and the carbon offset projects, such as preserving forests. So it's an internal tax uh, inside the company. How hard was it to convince Steve Ballmer and Bill Gates to do this? Well, the organization got behind it very quickly. We understand that, you know, internalizing this external cost of reducing pollution, carbon pollution, and how we needed to take that into consideration for our own operations and the amount of good that it does. Not only does it make good business sense because it drives efficiency when you've got a price signal that's associated with your operations and consumption of energy and business travel, but also we're able to then use those funds and have such an incredible impact in different parts of the world and help developing nations accelerate in a low-carbon economy, and that was really a big, a big position for us from a citizenship perspective, is what, how can we have that impact on a global basis? So, Cicel Wage, if this is, makes such strong business sense, why aren't more companies doing it? You know, um, there, um, there's always a range of reasons. Uh, Martin Bowen, uh, who's managing director at Puma of European and the Middle East, and I wrote a piece in GreenBiz in the spring in which um, we said there's really... There's two key reasons. One is the very same reason I have a 21-year-old friend recently that told me she had an astonishing amount of money in her checking account. And I said, why, why isn't it at least in a CD? And she said, what is a CD? I didn't even know that was an option. Um, so, you know, RED is relatively new. Explain what RED carbon. is. RED, well, let me pass over to Mike to, to lay out. Reducing emissions from deforestation and land and So it's a way of protecting forests. Okay. Yeah, so. it's a way of protecting forests. Um, it's a relatively new area of investment, investing in foreign car, uh, forest carbon. Um, and uh, So you're saying companies don't know about well, it. They don't range, think about forests. I'm making widgets, forests. That's not my business. Yeah, exactly. Not core business, or I'm not even aware that it's an option. The mm-hmm. other is there's a perception that um, that there's risks. I'm going to invest in offsets. I'm concerned about – I'm getting more and more investor questions around my climate strategy, around whether or not I'm offsetting, around whether or not I'm thinking about neutrality or just decreasing. What do I do? And you see more companies engaging. Um, but – for them, the question is, well, what, what is more risky? Might I end up with more questions from an investment and project? The reality is that forest carbon and red plus project, reducing emissions from deforestation and land degradation, are now 20 years old. We have 20 years of lessons. And not only that, we actually have a pretty robust institutional infrastructure um, around that is intended to provide insurances. So if you go through that process and you get assurances from, you know, the Voluntary Carbon Standard, the CCBA, the 
um, a range of other players out there, then you actually have a fair amount of ways and opportunities to de-risk and actually engage in both uh, significant climate mitigation opportunities, but it is an all, also an adaptation play, an investment in the communities in which you engage in many cases. Uh, Mike Krasinski, one reason, though, is that there's been some bad experiences. There's been some uh, some scams, some bad stories about, well, to people getting paid to do things they would have done otherwise. Uh, you know, the offsets have a bad reputation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a new industry. So, despite the fact that there are there are one or two examples that may be 20 years old, the, the great majority of the activity really started in 2005 when the United Nations decided that there might be this new mechanism that could called RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, which would allow you to quantify the carbon emissions that happen when a forest is lost, and then if you could prove that you are stopping that loss and doing it in a way that honors local indigenous rights and land tenure and mm-hmm. respects uh, safeguards. If you could do all of those things, then you could claim those emission reductions as an asset that you could then sell to a company like Microsoft that has done what it can to reduce its emissions but still has unavoidable emissions that it can't reduce. So so I think it's a, it's really only since 2005 that the, the, the majority of the the architecture and the infrastructure has been built. And in any new marketplace, there are going to be snake oil salesmen that take advantage of what somebody might have heard, the, the imperfection in the market. So I'm not going to argue that that hasn't happened. It isn't happening really anymore. Uh, probably for the last 18 months to two years, it really isn't happening because the rules have become much clearer and because the countries that have forests now are more aware of those rules and are more able to keep those snake oil salesmen out of the picture. So I think there, there, there was some, uh, and this is where the risk idea comes from, is that there were some bad experiences five, four or five years ago. But we really don't see that happening anymore in, in the red industry, and I think it's evolved, like any industry, to be more mature. And it has de-risked significantly, and that is now making more companies look at it. Because if you can imagine the risk issue is, I'm a company, and I think I'm doing something really good for the world. I'm investing in a community to help them protect their forest against economic threat. That's really what this is about. How do I help a community that wants to protect their forest against economic threat to earn some money from protecting their forest? So I think I'm doing something really good. If I, But if I read those stories from five years ago, I'm worried that I'm, I might be giving the money to the wrong person. That story might blow up on the New York Times. And now, mm-hmm. instead of doing something good, I've done something that's harming my brand instead of mm-hmm. helping my brand. So mm-hmm. the, it, the risk issue is a very real issue uh, in, in historically, which did stop a lot of companies looking at red. But I think I think now, with the advances that have been made, especially with the UN recognition of RED now as a formal mechanism, which happened very recently here in Warsaw at the climate conference, I think that risk has reduced dramatically. And as a result, the benefits now far outweigh the risks. TJ DiCaprio, some people would say that rather than Microsoft ought to go after coal in the United States or clean up power plants in the United States rather than something that's so far away that People are suspicious of companies doing things in faraway lands where they're not quite so sure what's going on. And wouldn't it be better for, for Microsoft, Google, and others to sort of clean up the power grid in the United States? Wouldn't that be more direct and help here more at home? Right. Well, and it's something actually that Mike and I were talking about a little later, uh, earlier today, and that is we can do both. 
we can support the supply and demand of more renewable energy in the United States and globally. And we can also, because of the market maturing, the level of professionalism, the amount of standards that have happened, we can also invest in these communities that are in different parts of the world. And I think the key here is because there was a few years ago, uh, we were very concerned about the legitimacy and the integrity of investing in forest projects. And it was actually when we got to know Wildlife Works that we were able to say, okay, several things have changed here. And I think it's a two-pronged approach. Number one, you need the standards, and you need the recognition now even from the UN on this approach as a, a standard asset. And then secondly, you need to work with people that have the project developers that have people on the ground, that work with the communities, that, that do not take land away, but they work with the tribes and the chiefs and the people on the ground where the money actually goes to the communities that they build so that not only are the trees protected and planted, but also these communities can then build themselves up and have education. They can build jobs for themselves and build sustainable communities for themselves. And that's where we see, really, in different parts of the world, our ability to have scale and to reach out into these different parts of the world and have such a big impact. So it's not uh, eco-colonialism where people are coming in and say, well, we cut down all our forests in Europe and the United States. Don't do that. You know, we're here to help you to do it differently. Does that ever come up, Mike Krasinski? I mean, in articles, you occasionally read that idea. But I think that the, in the end, it comes down to, does the community have the free ability to decide whether this is an idea they like or not. And if you're a good actor in the space, you make sure that the community has free, what's called free prior and informed consent. They know what they're, they're, what they're getting into and they have the ability to say yes or no. And I think they make their own decision, whether they be an indigenous group in the Amazon or whether they be a, an African uh, village, they make their own decision about whether the, what you're offering them is a, is a deal they like. And, and I think, uh, um, our experience is it's not one size fits all that some communities are want to be involved in a transaction where they can get paid for protection of their forest and some communities don't and I think that that but I think one of the things that that uh, the great majority do interestingly because for one reason or another forest communities tend to be very impoverished and they tend to be they, they tend to be in remote areas they tend to lack all the services so they 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 are looking for help and so if you're a good actor in the space and you're transparent with them about the potential help you can bring they they, they make their own decision and in general we find they they're positive about this idea and that they see it as a real opportunity to bring investment into their community to allow them to go down a non-destructive path, to allow them to, to invest in the necessary infrastructure of a community that would then support green development for a green development pathway for them. I remember a couple of years ago at, in the climate talk that there was lots of pessimism about not much traction, but forests were actually one of the bright spots, one of the success stories. And Brazil often gets talked about because of the Amazon. So let's talk about Brazil and what they've done with the uh, deforestation of the Amazon, have they turned it around? Has it slowed down that rate, either Cicel or Mike? Cicel? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously there's a complicated set of factors there. And so, and I think it highlights that the state of play with deforestation in Brazil highlights why uh, forest carbon projects and red projects are so important, which is that um, right now there's a very interesting, you know, big deal that um, around a red project that an indigenous group, the we have engaged in a, a group called, um, for which I used to work, for, Forest Trends, helped and worked with them um, to put that, and they just sold offsets to Natura, a Brazilian uh, cosmetics company. Um, 
many, many hectares of forest uh, in Brazil are also, though, under threat for all the different factors that Mike talked about, but also now increasingly due to a set of dynamics related to climate change. Um, there's been drought. There's been huge cataclysmic fires. There's been um, pests. And this is, these, this is not unique to Brazil. This is happening in the U.S. This is happening in Europe. So you're ending up with these com- conflagrations of fires and, and, and huge pest infestations, which we've seen throughout the West as well, um, as a result of a history of changing the management, right, as a result of changed uh, cycles of precipitation and drought. And it highlights the dynamics that if we don't think about um, forests and maintaining forests and the importance of forests in terms of natural capital, um, we are going to have increasing problems. At, at, at the most kind of basic level, we will have unintended release of carbon at massive scales, as per the fires we've seen in Brazil over the past few years. Um, and that's significant. So it kind of leads us back to thinking about, so how do you invest in, restore, and maintain forests? Red is, again, one of the tools at our doorstep. Mike Kuczynski? I mean, I think Brazil is a very – it's a fascinating case study. Firstly, Brazil has 540 million hectares of forest, uh, more than three times as much as any other tropical country uh, on the planet. So they're, they're, the scale of their challenge uh, and opportunity – Hectares being uh, – sorry, I, two and a half times acres. So, yeah. so over a billion – 1.2 billion acres of forest, uh, of tropical forest. So more than three times as much as any other tropical country. So they, they dominate the conversation about how forest protection might happen. But, but a, a great amount of that forest is really unthreatened by man at this point because it's so big and it's so remote and there are very relatively few people, mostly indigenous, living in those forests who are not the threat to the forest. So a big chunk of their forest is not under threat. Now, it's a huge forest, so the edge is huge. And so the pressure on the edge is enormous, even relative to any other country and threat other countries have. So they did experience a significant decline in their deforestation rates over a five-year period. What they're realizing now is that five-year period coincided with the collapse of beef and soy commodity prices. So the demand globally, which was driving the, the, the conversion of forest into cattle, pasture, and soy, went away for five years, and therefore their deforestation rate declined dramatically. What they're seeing already, because they're very good at monitoring, so they have the best monitoring systems, monthly monitoring of their forest, they're already seeing that kicking up again as the global economy recovers. So they're realizing that they didn't create a permanent solution to the problem with the, the measures they put in place. And our argument has always been, in the end, the permanent solution is working with forest communities. They are the... Eventually, you have to solve a problem for forest communities to make sure that the forest communities want that forest to stay and are going to benefit economically in keeping their forest intact. And I think that the Brazilians are now starting to realize they they can't just make legislative change. They actually have to go and invest in activities in forest communities if they want forest communities to choose not to go down a soy or cattle path when that opportunity does present itself again. Indonesia is also a big country, big player. Uh, you often hear about the, the, the smoke and the haze in Southeast Asia, and a lot of that's burning. So is there uh, hope in Indonesia, or is it a pretty dire situation, Mike Kuczynski? Um, I'm a hopeful guy. There's always hope. Um, so uh, Indonesia is a, another interesting case, 90 million hectares, uh, so uh, 220 million acres of forest, so a large forest estate, the third largest, Brazil largest, DRC, the Congo in Africa, the second largest, Indonesia, the third. So it's a, a very significant forest country. It has the, had the highest rates of deforestation. Most of that deforestation was for palm oil, which is a very innocuous 
palm that's native to Africa that was introduced into Indonesia because the growing conditions were great. And it's used in almost every product you can imagine for food. Uh, so all, any mass-produced cookie or baking product, it's going to have palm oil in it. And that palm oil more than likely came from destruction of Indonesia's rainforest. So there was a massive uh, conversion of forest in Indonesia over the last 20 years. Um, they've recognized that that is completely unsustainable, even for their own economy. So they're, they're doing their best to try and stop that. They've, they've, they're investing a lot. There's a lot of countries like Norway that are helping them, investing a lot of money. So there is hope that they're turning the corner and that they're, they're, uh, they're for example, supporting initiatives like the Sustainable Palm Oil Initiative, which, which requires that palm oil sources be identified as not having come from formerly forested areas. And so there, there, are, there are lots of initiatives that are, that are helping Indonesia, but Indonesia is a particularly challenging place because palm oil is a very lucrative agricultural crop for even for small-scale farmers. So the, the, to create a competitive alternative to that that doesn't involve destroying forests is very difficult and, and I think will remain a challenge in Indonesia now that they've seen, the individual farmers have seen how much money that can be made from, from 10 hectares. So, Sulagi, there's been pressure on international food companies to change the sourcing of palm oil. There's been some consumer work. I heard recently about a campaign by an environmental group where someone opened up, there was a video where someone opened up a Kit Kat and there was like an orangutan finger in there instead of the chocolate. Pretty hard-hitting stuff. Yeah. Uh, is that affecting corporate consciousness and behavior around palm oil? You know, it... The, the reality is, again, it's, it's hard to talk in aggregate about all companies, particularly all agriculture companies. Well, let's say Nestle. Um, <laughs> well, and I, yeah, I can't speak for anyone. I can't speak for Nestle. But we are seeing more action from and concern both behind the scenes and conversation and companies engaging with the roundtable, for example. Um, there have been also critiques at the roundtable. Greenpeace came out with a pretty hard-hitting critique um, uh, about a month ago as well. So uh, it is... It is an area that is uh, ripe for a lot of critique, honestly, um, and I think it's a challenge uh, for corporate leaders to actually look and critically think about what does this mean for supply chain management. And I do think that um, taking those issues seriously and not having, trying to get ahead of it and not having a burning platform, so to speak, ignite, um, is key. We are seeing more and more companies starting to say, these issues could ignite more and more, literally and figuratively. Um, but, you know, increasingly the engagement is there, but not, you know, it's, it's not at the level it's going to need to be, honestly. And it, what gets it there? Is it real risk concern by CEOs saying we're, we really have uh, consumer uh, problems with, with our brand or that there's, there's some revenue concerns that, that, that uh, prices might go up? What really drives it up to, I mean, yes. out of the sort of the corporate sustainability person who sort of manages community engagement into the real yeah. power center of a company? Well, yes, and I mean, it's as diverse as the leaders of the companies, which, um, you know, every time we work, go in and work with a company, somebody says, you have to understand my, my, my CEO is really unique. And I say, oh, how unusual, <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, it's, that's the case everywhere. But um, risk is enormous. Supply chain management um, is an enormous issue. Whether or not um, brand and reputation risk is abs- absolutely um, huge and hugely of concern. Um, but it's a very competitive marketplace as well. So people are looking at cost of inputs and their recipes and a range of other factors there. So um, I, th- I think the biggest 
trend I see, though, is that there's going to be more scrutiny and more pressure on companies about understanding their supply chains and understanding their unintended consequences. Um, and uh, the social media that kind of, this is just the tip of the iceberg and, and ability of Good Guide and a range of other players to kind of peel back the curtain on what is in this, you know, ABC piece of food or shoe or whatever I may pick up and be able to scan it with my smartphone um, and my iPhone and f- start to find out. So it is a real lesson and understand your co- consequences and your impacts all the way through your supply chain, even, you know, through tier one, tier two, tier three, and what it might be doing to, again, things that are far beyond your domain of usual control or accountability. Which kind of comes around back to Microsoft, T.J. DiCaprio. Have Microsoft shareholders benefited from a carbon tax at Microsoft? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the funny things, Cicely, you just mentioned about having a device Mm -hmm. to show the transparency of the impact of the supply chain. And I, I find that looking at technology, there is the plus side, too. While technology also consumes a lot of energy and and keeping our devices going. It also promotes that transparency that helps us be responsible. And, um, Greg, getting back to your question, absolutely, we're driving efficiency. You know, I I think that it's an interesting way to look at the issue. Does the carbon fee drive responsibility, or can we also look at it as Microsoft is well-managed and Therefore, managing its business, being responsible, and demonstrating responsibility with the carbon fee, and therefore it is being responsible to its, its customers. So, yes, the carbon fee drives a price signal, which helps us drive efficiency. We also promote um, the supply and demand of renewable energy. We also have impact globally at scale to help solve this big problem of climate change by supporting the preservation of forests and building communities and accelerating the development of a low-carbon economy in emerging nations, all of that is to benefit our customers. And, you know, does a carbon fee drive well-managed company? Does a well-managed company implement a carbon fee? And I would argue for more corporations to consider this very simple model is being a well-managed company, how can you not have the type of carbon fee that actually internalizes the cost of offsetting your pollution and driving that type of accountability and efficiency through your company. I remember a colleague of yours, Rob Bernard from Microsoft, was here a couple of years ago, and he talked about how, for the first time, the people running the data centers had to pay the energy for those da- the energy bills for those data centers. They used to be like, yeah, let's get the biggest servers we can, right? You know, and they never paid the bills. They start paying the bills. They start thinking, oh well, let's well, let's think about these servers and, and what we do. Um, so the, the, the question is whether, also you mentioned uh, corporate travel. So do Microsoft employees not fly a lot less? Well, we are, we are seeing different levels. I think there's lots of different variables that impact, especially corporate business travel. Um, but now what's nice about it is in our tool, it actually, when you go in to, to plan your trips, it actually shows you the carbon amount on your trip as well. And, you know, even now what's happening is we see this price of carbon being involved or being taken into consideration now for our long-term planning. So the, the data center folks or our business groups say, gosh, I'm going to buy so many servers. Well, now that cost of carbon is actually incorporated into their long-term financial planning on the cost of that server. So it's not only the energy they're paying for to the utility or where we, we pay the energy bills, but it's also that price we now have to pay to offset the carbon that's associated with running that server in that data center. If you're just joining us, we're talking about uh, forests and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Mike Korczynski, 
is with the uh, CEO and founder of Wildlife Works. TJ DiCaprio is a senior director of environmental sustainability at Microsoft. And Cicel Wage is with Business for Social Responsibility. Uh, TJ DiCaprio, Cicel Wage mentioned earlier that Puma has done a lot in terms of accounting for its environmental impact. They did an environmental profit and loss statement that said if we were to account for all of the environmental damage in our operations, here's what our profit would be. Would Microsoft do the same thing? Well, I think we've, we're setting the stage for that now because it's pretty exciting to see all the great things that we're doing now as a result of actually having that price on carbon, tracking all of the good things that we're doing. And it also gives us a way to level the playing field because when we start to take a look at carbon in terms of dollars and it infiltrates the whole financial structure, we actually have a view now into the business and into our ability to demonstrate environmental responsibility that we never had before. We also have, because we invest in internal efficiency projects, we have efficiency folks from all over the world in our different subsidiaries coming forward to us saying, hey, on, the, on those carbon fee funds, can we use some of those to do to accelerate this project that we may not have been able to do because we didn't have it in our original uh, financial planning? Right. And so we're able to have that view and that transparency now on the impact that demonstrating environmental responsibility has. And it's really by putting that price on carbon and integrating it into the financial structure of the company that's that's highlighting some of these pretty incredible things. So, so Wagi, what's been the, the impact for Puma doing that and have others followed? Well, I think the, the headline, I just perceived the answer. I mean, this is, it's a really important moment in time to flag that um, these are companies that are starting to actually internalize what have been historically called environmental externalities. Um, Pollution is, they push off on someone else, that is on, huge. onto the, the public. Yeah, that is very significant. Um, and uh, Dave Bachter, who's the, the founder of Earth Economics out of Seattle, um, talks about the importance of this need, starting to and needing to happen more and more at this moment in time. Because, And he likens this moment in time that we're in, facing climate change, facing massive species extinctions, facing deforestation, um, as very similar for environmental natural capital reasons to the financial capital crisis at the moment of the Great Depression. And what he says is that what the Great Depression told us about accounting, and there's this analogy here for what we're learning about accounting, is that we were focused on the wrong variables. Right? The Great Depression was fundamentally about, you know, banks were excellent at tracking their internal micro lending, a whole lot less good at tracking their lending across banks. And that's why many people did not see the Great Depression coming. Right? So we have been very, very good at engaged in a range of different ways in which companies account for profits and losses. We have been a whole lot less good at understanding how countries, companies, a range of other players um, impact the environment and nature. And that's why all of a sudden we're facing things like climate change, species extinction, water scarcity issues, a range of issues. These are the externalities now coming home to roost. Um, so what's really interesting, you have you know someone from Microsoft sitting here and TJ saying, we're internalizing that externality, one of these externalities. You have Puma saying, we're going to internalize this full suite and then saying, well, there's not really 
a corporate accounting structure or approach to do that. So we're going to collaborate with True Cost um, in order to develop that, and then we're going to put it out there for peer review. So what's fascinating, and then you have more and more companies looking at this, and again, quietly starting to explore. I've heard more people saying to to us behind the scenes, yes, in the next year, two, three, we're going to be developing an environmental profit and loss. And then what's going to happen that's going to be really interesting, again, for the um, forest carbon and red community is you're going to see companies with an astonishing amount of environmental losses. Our impacts to produce and move our products are jaw-dropping. Um, and they're going to be faced with increasing pressures to become more efficient and effective um, and say, okay, how do we shift those losses to profits? One of the ways, again, is you start thinking about offsets and investments in things like forest carbon and Red Plus projects then. Has that affected Puma's stock price? I mean, what, what tangible economic benefit has Puma realized so far? Is it they're just seen as a leader, brand leader? Their chairman, Zoken Zeitz, was, mm-hmm. was very personally committed to this. Uh, but, you know, that's soft and, and maybe squishy, but maybe not. I mean, are there tangible business results that Puma's achieved? Yeah, I can't. I haven't looked specifically at that. And you may be closer. Um, that they've gotten brand lift seems seems very, For very sure. clear to me. You know, maybe maybe a little yeah. bit from Microsoft is what we see is, again, the driving, because there's that price signal, is we do see the focus on driving efficiency when you've got another cost set up to include in long-term planning. So in there, if I break it down, there's, there's two points. There's reducing the risk to margins by cutting costs. And even from a travel perspective, suddenly, again, technology can be the benefit here because we've got collaboration technology that we can use in many ways so that we don't have to get on a plane and go across to Europe or have these, these meetings or even commuting to work. You know, we can, we can work from different places and we actually get on the phone. You've got the audio visual, et cetera. So. Oh, you bought Skype. Good. Yes. Exactly. So the technology can help you reduce the costs. And that's one element. And then as well, it's reducing the, the risk to revenue. How can we deliver enough benefit to our customers so that our customers realize that we are managing our business, we are driving discipline and accountability in how we manage our business, and how do we deliver value to our customers so that our customers want to buy Microsoft cloud services and devices. So there, there's a, a way to look at it from a financial perspective where it's, it's talking about, again, reducing the risks and reducing the risk to, to margin and revenue. And, and do you, in, those, in those conversations, do you talk to people who either doubt or dismiss climate change? You're talking very. You just make a business case, and do you care? Does climate even come into it? Maybe not. Well, well, I think that uh, you know, climate change is such a serious challenge that it it's understood that it if we keep it tied to business, then we get back to the supply chain. And what are the impacts on our business? What can we do as a global citizen to be able to help mitigate any type of, of consequences that are currently happening from, from climate change? So it just makes a, a real business sense to, to reduce the risks. For, you know, for most people in business also, again, you know, the conversations are very different company to company. But what is not disputed is that um, all of these environmental issues, this is like gravity. I have a colleague that used to say, you know, you can you can be an engineer and choose to wake up every day and say, I'm going to design a bridge but not think about gravity. Your bridge will fall, right? Um, and uh, so it's foolhardy. So you wouldn't do that. But we, but that is what we effectively have done in many ways with the um, environment, think, lack of thinking about environmental impacts with many, uh, the design and structure of our supply chains and many of our businesses. And increasingly, business leaders are, are looking at those impacts. And again, climate change is one, deforestation is one, and understanding, like, this is like gravity. 
And so while I might not be able to describe the exact nature of the impacts, it's clear there are going to be impacts. And it's clear they're going to be nasty and adverse. And it's clear they're going to also affect my company. And risk. Um, risk And and significant risks. And so then the conversation gets very detailed for particular companies and supply chain, um, et cetera. But we're at a moment in time where um, it really is akin to gravity. You You don't dispute anymore the relationship. The discussion and the dispute is more like, how, when, and where will it affect me? And therefore, how do I rank and prioritize actions? And what do I do underneath the table quietly so that people don't say you're not doing enough or you're not engaging, et cetera? And so what's interesting is I, we see more and more companies engaging quietly, and I wish more companies would come out of the closet, so to speak, and talk about what they're doing. Um, there are concerns in many cases that, you know, okay, we only are sourcing X percent organically, and does that mean, you know, what about the rest of it? Ten percent, that's inadequate, et cetera. And then they're, they're concerned that they're going to get critiqued, for example. Whatever they would do won't be good enough. enough. Mike Rotinsky, you want to get in this? Well, I was just going to give a, a commentary because I, I know Joachim Zeitz, and, and I think, you know, so initially the impetus there was, a, was a, a very strong personal belief that it was the right thing to do, that the future of corporations is that they will have to account for, that it's the right thing to do for them to account for the externalities in, within their business. And so it started with a personal conviction, and, and he was in a position of authority that he could then figure out how do I move that into my own company as an example. And I think there, the, the old business adage that if you're not measuring it, you're not going to manage it, is where he started, which if we're not measuring these things, how are we going to manage them and how are we going to change them? So step one, let's measure them. Let's measure energy use. Let's measure emissions. Let's measure water use, the major environmental impacts, toxins that we have. And so we can see what the impact we're having is, and then we can decide how they fit our business and whether or not, because using water has a cost. You pay for water in most parts of the world. Using energy has a cost. So each emission you create has a cost. So once you see the, the where it's happening in your business, then you can start to manage it. And I think, so his first thing was came from a personal conviction, but he quickly realized that we need to create a system where companies are measuring and looking at the results before they can actually start managing. And then each company will make their own decision about how they manage it, how aggressively they, they offset or they, they pay the economic costs today. And, and he, they had those issues at Puma about, gee, you know, are we going to be criticized? And in his mind, I, I have to say Patagonia was always the landmark company that he used in his mind because Patagonia, uh, his, you know, many people love Patagonia and are extremely loyal to Patagonia because they tend to always do the right thing no matter what it says about their business. They'll admit they're using toxic stuff in some of their products. They'll say, here's our product. This one's great. It's organic cotton. This one, not so good because in order for us to give you the functionality we want, we're having to use these nasty things in it. But we're trying to figure out how not to. And so his his benchmark was always, gee, if Patagonia can get away with doing that and people applaud them for being honest about their shortcomings, why can't we? And so so get the information out there, be be a leader in, in getting it out there, and then let the marketplace decide whether you should be applauded for that or not. Patagonia has some luxuries, though, as a private company. They have some things, uh, uh, some latitude that other companies don't have. And actually, uh, Rick uh, Ridgway was here from Patagonia recently, and he's not so keen on uh, organic cotton because it uses lots of water. Sure. It's, or, or it's great on the pesticides, et cetera, but it still uh, uses lots of water. So let's talk about water. Sisawagi, Coca-Cola, 
Pepsi-Cola, India, there have been some really celebrated cases of mm-hmm. companies getting in some pretty sticky situations because people are starting to realize how much water is used to make a can of Coke. So let's talk about water risk and vulnerability for them. Yeah, and I think, you know, the best way, again, to kind of situate this in your mind, issues around water scarcity, is it is another manifestation of an environmental externality issue. Um, I have a a colleague who calls it, um, and he, he works with financial services sector players, and he talks about, ecosystem malfunction risk and as a ecologist I was like what does that mean but um but but what it you know what he's signaling is that and what coke experienced in 2005 in Kerala India when they had to shut down their bottling plant um under you know considerable <laughs> questions this is the most genteel way to say it but um concern uh around what are both quality um coming out of the plant, but also quantity usage. Um, and uh, even though they were able to bring in many, many scientists to show that they were using a different underground aquifer from which the um, local villagers were drawing upon to do farming, um, there still was a gap between and concerns around perception of water use and drought and scarcity. And the reality is... Um, Companies face, there's multiple licenses to operate, and, and Jeff Seabright of Coca-Cola has talked about that a lot, that there's, you know, there's the actual physical license to operate that you have to receive, um, but there's also social license to operate. Um, and then there's also license to operate, like, is the resource there and available? And uh, in 2005, in Connecticut, a nuclear power facility had to shut down because the temperature of the ocean water um, was higher than that which was prescribed to cool the nuclear power facility. Our, you know, players in the financial services sector or our companies reliant upon that power, um, factoring in this kind of ecosystem malfunction that is, in that case, as a function of climate change and warming summers, increasingly going to happen. Are you thinking about risk and due diligence in a way that is encompassing both the ways and the impacts and dependencies you have on normal structure and function of ecosystems? Um, And the answer for many people in business is no. I I don't even know what they are. so you have a growing number of players. World Resources Institute has put out different tools, the Ecosystem Services Review. We at BSR work with companies on a range of these issues to say, do you understand your impacts and your risks and dependencies? Do you understand and are starting to perhaps think about investing in the restoration, maintenance, and function of the ecosystems which you rely, which then get back to red? Um, so if you're working in an area that really depends on a normal maintaining ecosystem, maybe you should think about investing in Whereas in the past, companies have just managed inside their fence, right? Inside the, the, where their water comes from, they don't manage the up the the hill, the forest upstream outside where they... Uh, Mike Kuczynski? Yeah, no, they're starting to. I mean, I think Coca-Cola is an example where in, in, south, in, in southeastern Kenya, you know, their bottling plants are at the coast. All that water comes from a very small cloud forest in a national park. And that very small cloud forest in a national park that's 200 miles away from their bottling plant is under extreme threat from, for conversion for very low economic value. And so they're starting to recognize that, you know, gee, uh, our business, the, the, the sustainability of our business is threatened if we don't start thinking about where this water is coming from. And there are, of course, the social issues of how much are they allowed to take versus the rest of the community, and all those issues are managed fairly well because this is a pipeline that provides very, very currently still very large amounts of water. But they can see the trend, and if that forest disappears, then 7 million people at the coast will be without water. Uh, and Coca-Cola has a 
has the potential to help solve that problem because they are the most one of the larger economic beneficiaries of that flow of water that is currently being captured by the cloud forest. So, so, and retain, and, and their, retain access. their access to the water and, and, yeah. and, and, and everybody else's access to the water, which is in, in, the, in the coastal community. So there, there, and there's another example of, of uh, tea, you know, tea production in, in Kenya, where the rainfall is not what it used to be. And, the, and it's not so the, 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 the tea growers are now starting to realize, holy moly, we better figure out why that forest is being cut down and what we can do to stop that forest being cut down because our local rainfall is being affected by local climate change because that forest is being cut down. So I, I think businesses are, you know, you can argue that they're doing it out of self-preservation, but better there, there than, than nowhere, I think. And I think that's one trend that, that we're really seeing is that companies are starting to realize that the definition of sustainability for their business means access to the resources they need to be in business in the future. And if they don't ensure that they're doing whatever they can to, that, to make sure those resources are available, that, then they're threatening their own sustainability. And I think the best analogy, though, on that is, you know, any company that is using the Panama Canal, for example, to move their cars or their shirts or their jackets or whatever through the Panama Canal, they pay money to the harbor master, right? And the harbor master makes sure it's dredged and there's it's steep slopes and there's a lot of erosion due to deforestation around the Panama Canal. Um, and uh, But that, you know, you pay for and you pay the Oakland Harbor and, you know, other harbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and you expect in exchange that when you arrive, there'll be someone there, they'll get your stuff off. The, but yet we don't pay to maintain that cloud forest, which is key for maintaining, um, you know, the structure and function of recharge of the underground aquifers. Um, Dow Chemical Company recently did an analysis with the, natu- uh, the Nature Conservancy and their public, it's available online, um, looking at investing in green infrastructure instead of a, a, a water filtration plant. And um, the economic, the delta was was hugely beneficial to just invest in the green infrastructure. To, and the ability of a well-functioning uh, area that can filter water is actually enormous. The, again, there's a famous case out of the Catskills of the same. But this, it's getting at this bigger set of issues around companies rely on built infrastructure and green infrastructure. We just haven't talked about the green infrastructure. Before. Tony Juniper is a, a British author who was here recently who said that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature, not the other way around. Your discussions highlight something that I think is quite an opportunity, and that's the delivery of innovation. Because when we take a look at these situations, how can we suddenly understand, here's a situation I need to fix, and then how can I innovate to meet that need and make a difference? Rolling it back into Microsoft's instance, when we took a look at, from energy consumption perspective, one of the things that we're taking a look at and, and also using the carbon fee funds for, how can we start to generate and use and consume renewable energy by using methane or, or building our data centers and having them be near um, ranches so that there's a poop to power? Mm-hmm. And how can we start to develop <laughs> new ways that we can consume energy? How, what are new ways in, from a technology perspective that we can power servers on the blades and in the data centers in ways that are much more efficient and consume less energy? So I think often you'll see a, a, a much, uh, a big improvement and a drive and a push for innovation because of these situations. Huge, it's really yeah. possible. I've heard about yeah. data centers one day without walls because so much of the data center energy is, is yeah. cooling, right? Yeah. So uh, let's have our yeah. audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Uh, my name is Lewis Bloomberg. I'm with the Nature Conservancy. I want to thank the panel for the great presentation. And the only uh, forest war I'm hearing, Greg, is really coming from your chair. But um, 
Let me let me start with a comment and lead end up with a question. I want to draw this a little bit closer to home here in California. Just last month, there was a study from Princeton University that showed if all of the Amazon forest was was deforested, the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada would be reduced by 50 percent. So what happens in the Amazon, what happens in tropical forests, affects our water right here in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, the point, uh, the question I guess I want to lead to is, is around um, markets and voluntary action. And just last month, California approved the first compliance grade forest carbon credits from projects within the United States. So this, talking about minimizing risk, now we have in California a model for a carbon credit that has the, the faith and backing of the state of California. So this, this is really uh, uh, yeah. the best way to reduce risk that I know is having a compliance grade credit. So my, my question to the panel is, been some great um, information about voluntary action, corporate best practices, people uh, really reaching out to try to make this happen. Do you think that we can achieve the scale that you've talked about um, by continued voluntary action by the business community and nonprofits, or do we need some kind of uh, global carbon market? And if so, how are we going to get that? Big question, but can, is, let's start with you. Is voluntary enough? Because you work a lot with corporations mm-hmm. trying to get them to do more than what they have to do. Yeah. Right. yeah, no, my personal opinion is, you know, voluntary is, is definitively not going to be enough, not only because of the magnitude of the issue, but also the rate. This is the decisive decade. You talk to every single scientist, uh, particularly climate change scientists, but also force, this is the decisive decade. So, um, the set of issues and the rate to, you know, that we have to start addressing things in a, at a significant, really at scale. Um, so, you know, it would be wonderful if, I mean, again, there's a range of different um, options that uh, I will say from a personal stance uh, that I think are incredibly important from, you know, from carbon taxes through regulation. It's my response is it's got to be all of the above. Um, and it's a matter of it's a challenging political com- climate. Um, we are privileged to be, in some ways, to have a different political climate here. But we need all of the above, and we need it quicker and um, much more significant action. T.J. DiCaprio. And why not move from a vol- move into voluntary action instead of waiting for some type of regulation to happen? I mean, you know, because there's, there's a stock price, there's a cost, there's a stock <laughs> price, right? There's, um, yeah, you know, it's really simple. And so let's not wait. Let's, but but the know. reality is there is a dynamic there. And actually, the reason a number of um, companies are engaging is they think it's only a matter of time before either there's some sort of regulation or investor mandates or, you know, there's a range of pressures and they feel like, okay, I'll use um, engaging with RED as my initial step to learn and understand and develop competency. So, T.J. DiCaprio, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett are trying to get people to give away their half of their wealth. They're calling people up and, and twisting arms on the telephone. Is Microsoft going to other companies and say, you got you should have a carbon tax, join us? Right now, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely, and we we will be coming out with a uh, a uh, a guide um, in order to talk about what our carbon fee is, why it can be beneficial to other organizations, and then how to implement one. So there's there's really nothing left except to say, gosh, let's let's get going, let's not wait, let's take action. Because Walmart's used its corporate power tremendously to get other companies uh, to follow its suit, uh, and uh, Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Anya Dimitrova. I'm a researcher from UC Berkeley. 
Um, and my question is this. As red credits are becoming more and more mainstream tradable commodity, they start competing with uh, carbon credits from non-forest projects, for example, a pig farm in China. Yet forest credits have a lot more benefits than just conserving carbon. They, they're beneficial for, for biodiversity, for uh, water conservation, for developing um, and enabling the livelihood of local communities. And I'm wondering if these additional benefits would be reflected and can be reflected in the price of carbon credits. Mike Kuczynski? As we sell, as we sell carbon credits, I'll take that one. Um, so I think the first piece of that, the answer is that, um, that uh, in a voluntary market, price is willing buyer, willing seller. So there's no question that in a voluntary market, um, forest carbon credits get a higher price, no question, because of the added values that are, are of, of real value to the buyer, to the corporates that are, that see those benefits and the co-benefits as being real and tangible part of the reason why they're doing it. So I think in a voluntary market, that's the case. There is a question in, 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 uh, to answer the compliance market issue. Um, there is a question as to when things become compliance markets. If, if carbon credits are commoditized and forest carbon credits become part of that commodity market, then, then they will have the same price as everything else. So the, so the, there is a question structurally within the international community about whether that's the right answer for forest carbon. Because forest carbon is very different than other kinds of carbon. All other kinds of carbon emission reductions are an add-on to another business activity. The pig farmer grows pigs. They happen to make a lot of methane, and if he, if he flares that methane, he can claim some small emission reductions that give him additional profit, but the bottom line is he's a pig farmer. Protecting forests is not an economic activity without the carbon value. So forest carbon is unique in the, con- in the sense that it has costs associated with protecting forests that aren't met by any other source of revenue within that program. So, so there is a, a debate about whether the right answer for forest carbon is that it be commoditized along with all these other credits, or it has a separate system with a floor price that that meets the basic needs of the projects to be successful over the long term to deliver the benefits that the communities need to be able to transition into a low-carbon economy over the long term. So that is a, that's a legitimate debate, um, I think, and the UN recognizes that debate. I think the UN recognizes that potential dichotomy between these classes of of emission reduction, I think. And so I think it, it, people have gotten a lot smarter. I don't think the debate is there's going to be this big global market and everything will be thrown in. I think it's, it's, it's going to be much more intelligent now in the context of forest. And the reason forest carbon emissions are so important, not just the scale, is it's the least expensive way for us to reduce emissions at scale today. It's far less expensive for the planet to reduce emissions by protecting forests and giving communities economic benefits than it is to build a solar power plant in California or in Spain. Far less expensive. So if all we're concerned about is how do we reduce emissions quickly and cost-effectively to get the maximum climate benefit, we should be spending every dime on protecting forests and not on all these other things. Now, that's not a reality. <laughs> that, that, of course, is not a reality. We also need to transition our economies, our developed economies, into low-carbon economies. So we need to find a balance between cost-effective emission reductions through protecting forests and making the necessary investments in renewable energy to move our economy away from creating so many emissions in the first place. And that balance is really the key for California and and for the United States, I think. Mike Korczynski is CEO and founder of Wildlife Works. We're talking about forests and climate change at Climate One. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Hello. My name is Raquel, and I'm just a person who loves forests and understand that they are the lungs of the world and having forests standing 
allows us all to breathe, and I like to breathe. So here is my question. How does protecting a forest in Africa benefit the local forest community? Mike Korczynski? So um, the, the contract, if you like, with the local forest community is that, that we as an organization and our investors are willing to pay them a fee for every ton of emissions that they reduce. So the science, there's science involved in figuring out how many emissions would come from a forest if it were destroyed. There's, there are rules to make sure that it really was under pressure and that they didn't wake up one day and just think, gee, we'll protect our forest and make some extra money. So there are safeguards to make sure that these forests are really threatened. If they are, then we can quantify the value of that forest to the community, and we pay them in order to change their practices. Because it's really, in, in all human endeavor, it's never about the science, and the, it's always about the people. It's always about how do you actually change these people's behavior from the path they're on, which is destroying forests for economic need of one reason or another, to a low-carbon path that doesn't destroy the forest. And getting people to want to change, you can incent that want to change with money because they need money for schools and healthcare and other infrastructure within their community. So you can incent the beginning of that change with money. But in the end, they have to believe that that's the right answer for them long-term as a community to leave their forest intact because eventually the carbon money runs out. In 30 years' time, the carbon money runs out. They have to have made a transition to another economy that doesn't depend on destroying the forest. So it's it, So they benefit directly in economic payments if they participate in protecting the forest. They benefit in jobs. We, we, we invest, part of our investment is activities that will allow them to earn money in ways that don't destroy the forest. So alternative agricultural programs that are intensifying agriculture on the existing land that they have, alternative charcoal methods so that they can create economic income from charcoal that doesn't involve destroying forests but involves harvesting sustainably shrubs and other things that they can char. So uh, it involves finding uh, non-land-based jobs. So, you know, is there a way that we can create a a small economy within their community that is not dependent on land? So so the communities benefit in many ways from these programs. Generally speaking, in a well-run red project, somewhere 60 to 70% of the money goes directly into the community, and the rest obviously has to keep the government happy and the investors happy that put the money in in the first place. But So a lot the money goes in, and that's what incents them to want to move in the first place. But in the, in the end, they have to begin to believe that that's the right answer for them. And so, and, and, and that's the long term, and that's why healthcare investments are so important. That's why education investments are so important, because education transforms their view of the future. It transforms their view of how their children are going to interact with their environment. It gives them a way to earn money based on their skills and knowledge rather than their hands and labor. Uh, so, I mean, all of these things are ways in which the community benefit. And, uh, and ultimately, that's what RED is about. It's about finding that way to incent communities to want to move into an alternate path. We have to wrap this up, but I, I want to uh, just close by asking each of you how you're personally managing your own carbon and water footprint. T.J. DiCaprio. Yeah, and um, f- first, just because it, I was so struck, Mike, by your comment, is that it's really an honor that Microsoft can be involved with programs like that, that we can have. I mean, you know, so thank you for your work, and it is truly an honor that we can be part of that and help support making such a difference in so many people's lives and the, and the planet. Um, I have reduced, well, first two things, travel, 
um, reduce travel significantly. Well, thank you for coming here today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I was with she the walked. exception. I know I should have be on a video screen here. Um, significantly reduced my travel, and that's really made a big difference uh, for myself. And then even with commuting, what I do is I either uh, work from home, I also um, walk. I walk to a local office. And so I've moved my whole situation where I can actually walk to work, so that's made a big difference. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's over time what's also happened with education is I realize I need a lot less. And it's really a lovely lifestyle to be free from um, wanting and thinking I need so much. It's an, it's an incredible change for me uh, with my own lifestyle to, to be free and need less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I live in Berkeley and we happen to buy a solar, you know, a solar house, solar hot water solar. So we're, we're lucky in that regard. Um, and I also, um, I travel very little. Um, Jim Collins famously would always, you know, say that you, if you want to talk to him, he wrote, built a book, great book, Built to Last, you come to me. So I say, I'm just not really a famous Jim Collins. If you want to talk to me, you come to me. Um, you know, um, so I travel very little and I telecommute a fair amount. Um, and when you look at footprints, Air travel is one of the biggest ones for, you know, urban living people who, who have already, particularly if you're already on solar, depending, et cetera, et cetera. So. Mike Krachinski? Um, yeah, I guess that's probably the biggest personal thing is I'm a vegetarian. So I, be, I became a vegetarian once I started this quest towards um, protecting forests because the biggest use of, land, of conversion of forested land is to provide meat for, for, for human consumption. So that, that was my first uh, probably personal commitment. I live in a rammed earth house. Uh, it's solar powered. Uh, uh, and I drive an SUV because I have four dogs. So it's... <laughs> So, uh, and I fly all over the world to forests uh, to try and help protect them. So, um, I'm a big fan of uh, somebody finding a way to fly sustainably. Um, but uh, as of yet, it's a bit of a contradiction in my life. Some biofuels working on that, and uh, car companies are trying to get hydrogen into uh, SUVs. So that, anyways, uh, it's a ladder. Wherever we are, we can always do more. Climb up next rung on the ladder. We're out of time. Our thanks to Mike Krochinski, founder and CEO of Wildlife Works. T.J. DiCaprio. Senior Director of Environmental Sustainability at Microsoft, and Cecil Wage, Director of Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services at Business for Social Responsibility. I'm Greg Dalton. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available in the iTunes store. Thank you all for coming today, and thanks for listening. <laughs>